You are listening to episode 206 of the Confident Coaches Podcast, the one where we're going to get a little neuro spicy again. Let's go. Welcome to the Confident Coaches Podcast, a place for creating the self-confidence you need to do your best work as a life coach. If you want to bring more boldness, more resilience, and more joy to your work, this is the place for you. I'm your host, Amy Latta. Let's dive in. I have one of the best episodes I think I might have done. This is going to rank so high up there. I absolutely know it. Today, I am interviewing one of my coaches. I am interviewing Megan Kirsten, my ADHD coach. And the conversation you're about to listen to, number one, it is for both the neurospicy and the neurospicy curious. You do not have to have ADHD or any form of neurodivergence to get a huge amount of value out of the conversation that you're getting ready to hear. By the end of this episode, you will not only have a better understanding of how ADHD can present and how it's showing up, how the world is functioning versus how we function, but also at the end, we just have what I really think is a beautiful conversation around how you as a coach can become a better coach for all clients, both neurodivergent and not. And Megan offers some really powerful yet simple questions. And this will be a conversation for all. I hope you enjoy. Okay, coaches, I am very honored and excited to invite my ADHD coach on. This is Miss Megan Kirsted, ADHD coach, behavioral designer, and neurospicy innovator. Welcome, Megan, to the podcast. How are you? I'm fabulous. I'm really happy to be here, especially because apparently it's ADHD Awareness Month. <laughs> which By the way, it's on learned. brand that I don't know that. Like that is just 100% on brand. So yeah, like right out of the gate, know that I had no idea. I happened to see it and said, hey, I should have Megan on. Emailed her. She signed up. We're here. And it's news to her too. If all of that sounds familiar, you are in the right place because this is how we work. <laughs> so I am unsure exactly where I found you. We met on the internet. We friended somehow, tons of mutual friends, saw you talking about your Black Sheep program and ADHD. And if you are new to the podcast, I was diagnosed in March after, and I turned 49 in April. So we're talking about a very long time of being an undiagnosed woman, mom, entrepreneur, homemaker, all, business owner, all of the things. And I kind of thought, some things I've always kind of known that I was different. And yet the beginning of this year, I was almost non-functioning, which I have shared in past episodes about, particularly in the month of January, I was like, something's wrong. I could barely get out of bed some days. I couldn't put a sentence together. I, it was rough. It was really, really rough. And it eventually led me too. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, Megan, and why I think your work is so important. 
I had other friends on the internet talking about getting diagnosed with ADHD and what that looked like. And because they were just sharing, it gave me a doorway to find out, hey, that does not sound like me. So Megan, let me ask you how you, how did this become your thing? Like what's like, how, how did you get here? Cause I'm assuming you didn't wake up in high school and be like, I'm going to grow up to be an ADHD coach. Oh no, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know I had ADHD in, in high school though. It would have been really nice if I did. Yes. Um, so I, I got diagnosed like, I think I was 23, 24, which nowadays actually seems early because a lot of the people I encounter are getting diagnoses much later in life. But at that time, especially this would have been 14 years ago, something like that, going on 15 years ago, you know, you were either diagnosed in childhood or it was very rarely in adulthood. Now, luckily, because of increased awareness, more people are getting diagnosed. But um, yeah. I didn't know until after college and high school in particular was very, very challenging for me. College was better because I got to do more of what I was interested in. But I started yeah. seeing... Uh, you know, it was very much a similar experience where I, I started seeing a psychologist because something was wrong. Like it was clear that the world did not work for me. And I was feeling very anxious, depressed, which is really common, by the way, if you are undiagnosed neurodivergent to either feel very anxious or depressed or both. This is why there are a lot of people who get diagnosed with with both of those when they sort of start seeing a psychiatrist for the first time. And I had no idea, especially this was before TikTok. This was before, you know, mm -hmm. the world yeah. we live in now. I had no idea. I, the psychologist was like, I'm pretty sure you have ADHD. I was like, what? No, that's not possible. No, yeah. I was not like a hyperactive kid bouncing all right. over. Right. Which which was the stereotype, especially boys. It was it was very much boys and like you'd really struggle in school and there were all these stereotypes, you know, you're bouncing off the wall and it turns out it's not nearly that simple, which is why we're seeing a lot more people getting diagnosed now, especially women, especially adult women who have historically been high achieving in, in one way, shape or form, because it turns I have out having no way. <laughs> yeah. ADHD doesn't make you dumb and I have and, no idea what you're talking about. High yeah, exactly. Women. I know. <laughs> yeah. I work, I work almost exclusively with, with like high, high achieving humans who at some point realize, oh God, this could be easier. Yeah. So I actually worked in tech for over a decade. I was a social science researcher. I, I researched people and behavior. And what I found as I was doing that, I was learning more about myself and ADHD and, and how to adapt things. And one of the things that I found to be deeply, deeply frustrating about the corporate world, even though I worked in startups, even, even though I worked in less traditional environments was how much there were expectations on me to behave a certain way yeah. and function in a certain way in a nine to five jobs in a very like structured, linear, yeah. organized way. And I would frequently get sick and, and I have chronic migraines. Mm. So all of this like came together. And at some point, you know, I started working with a coach. I didn't know coaching was a thing until sometime in my thirties and lo and behold, <laughs> It entirely changed my life, which everyone on the, who listened to the podcast probably has a similar experience where like you discover coaching. And then and then at some point I realized I wanted to leave tech because of lots of reasons I don't need to get into, but it includes a lack of support for people yeah. who function differently. And I started coaching and it became more and more obvious that we needed to be having more conversations about how it's okay to function differently and yes. relate to productivity differently and relate to how we work differently. And that was always a theme also of the kind of work I did 
in tech. So it sort of emerged organically, which is also how I used to operate. So that's that's at a high level what my story was. But I definitely never set out to be like, I'm going to be an ADHD coach. And it just sort of happened. <laughs> yeah. And it's really interesting because I can already see I something that you just said was you, it sounded like you had this awareness that like your environment wasn't optimized for you or I didn't. Yeah. And I, I just think, thought, I think that's just, one of my gifts, honestly, yeah. like, uh, um, is seeing that, that the environment is just totally wrong. Um, I thought I was totally wrong. Yeah. Like, like I, I was like, clearly the environment is fine because look at all these people thriving in it, but I'm not thriving in it. So maybe I just need to work harder, try harder. I need to buckle down my, here's all the phrases, right? I need to buckle down more. Um, I have performance reviews from press of like, you need to be better at organizing and, and, Everything was like, here are all these tips of like, and I'm like, yes, yes, I'm going to implement these systems and I'm going to implement. It never, ever occurred to me that the problem was outside of me. Yeah, right. Well, and and that's what we're told, especially yeah. because we we are, you know, it starts in school, like there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And if you're yeah. not getting the right answer, it's your fault. You need to learn it and adapt it. Whereas it turns out real world one there are very rarely right answers and two sometimes the system itself is the thing that's broken not the person in fact i would i now default to assuming it's something with the system rather yes. than the person and if a system doesn't support a diverse set of humans and capabilities and skills mm -hmm. then the system's wrong not not that well, and it, that might come because I worked in user experience. So it was very yeah. much about like supporting different types of people. Now, not everyone in user experience is like that, but that was one of my things. So now I look at the world and I'm like, why, why can't we support this? Especially because we know there's so many advantages to having different types of minds working yes. on similar problems. And, and something that you just said there reminds me of the, uh, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but like, systems operate exactly how they're designed to operate meaning like if if the if you aren't function like the system is designed and if there's you're not thriving in there then it's it's like this it, it's operating the way that it's supposed to be so while there's probably generate and at least an entire generation because I'm, I'm you know being the age that I am gen x woman those of us who kept like, well, it can't be the system that's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think I benefited. I'm a little younger. I'm not, I'm, yeah. I'm about to turn 38. So I think one of the interesting things of, of when I was growing up is we were seeing these just huge changes. Cause like, yeah. I remember what it was like to have not have computers, but also computers were very much part of how I right, grew up. Yeah, right, like, right, right. So, so I got to see like, wait a minute, so much is changing here. Why can't we change it in ways that work for people? So, I mean, interestingly enough, the the remote work crisis that's happening in a lot of places, there, mm -hmm. there's all these existential crises about letting people work remotely. And that was something that I was a huge proponent of early on because I knew that particularly neurodivergent humans often need a different literal physical working environment. Yes. And I remember having a conversation with one of my bosses where she said, I need to be in the office, not for any reason related to my work directly, but literally to, you know, have people see my face. 
And I just burst into tears, like uncontrollable sobbing, because it was so clear that she didn't understand how exhausting it was for me to do that on a day-to-day basis. Like I could do it sometimes, but it had always had a cost and it wasn't like a neutral thing for me. It was something that required so much extra work and she just didn't understand. And that's how the system wasn't supporting me. And, and this shows up in many, many different ways. That's just one example, but the world doesn't support things, but it could. That's, that's the part that gets me, gets me fired up is like, it's not like there is no solution here. There are often amazing, incredible, easy solutions, as long as people are willing to adapt and be flexible and, you know, question things a little bit. Yeah. Like to that point of like the system is producing the outcome exactly as it was designed to. And we're just now starting to say, Hey, maybe we need to redesign the systems. And, and I feel like definitely my parents' generation and a lot of people who are in my age are just, we were so trained to adapt the system. And if you can do that. And so now I think we're in this, I hope we're in this stage of like, okay, if the system is producing exactly what it was designed to do, and it's not working for everybody, then let's, what modifications do we need to make? Yeah, exactly. And, and that includes people being aware that there's nothing wrong with them and that they don't need to have anything to be ashamed of. They don't need to adapt. In fact, the system needs to adapt to them. And it's a big mindset shift, but once you do it, it opens up a whole different world because you're like, wait, I don't actually have to work according to a calendar and blocking my time or whatever version of that is. I, I, calendars and I, I I I just died a little bit right there. Yeah. Because calendars in in ADHD usually have some very interesting relationships, but like, you don't have to do that. It turns out there are a million different ways to organize your time or relate to time. But because we, we assume we're taught, like these are the best ways or the only ways people don't question that. So what I view it as one of my jobs is to sort of just tell people like, it turns out you can do it another way and it's, and it's okay. And it's fine. And the world is not going to explode. And there's nothing wrong with you if you need to do it a different way, which is, you know, really the core of like a lot of what I talk about, especially when paired with like not being ashamed of it. I have also plenty of rants about shame and how not useful at all. I'm going to stick a pin in about where I was going to go because I do want to talk about that. That has been, so if y'all want a little behind behind the scenes, when I came into uh, Megan's introductory program, it was like... I'm going to have her help me figure out my system. And that's not what we did. No. Uh, it was all. In case you're this wondering. is really common, by the way. <laughs> Amy is not the only one who has this experience. <laughs> I was like, oh, so I have ADHD and she's an ADHD expert. So I'm going to hire her to help me figure out what's the system that works for me. And instead, what we ended up doing was shame work. Yeah. And it reframed everything in a very uncomfortable and also very emotional way for, for me. And so let's, all right, fine. Let's, let's talk about that. Why is that so like I'm not, I'm not an anomaly. You really, really, very, very common. Well, I think there are a few reasons. I think why this is common. One people get a diagnosis and a lot of the sort of common memes out there like you know you just have to come up with some different systems to work for you by the way there is a little bit of truth in that 
-hmm. but you can't do that (laughs) and have it be sustainable until you learn how to fuel yourself using a different form of motivation that is not based on shame. Because a lot of what ADHD comes down to is a different form of motivation. We are more motivated by interest and stimulation and engagement compared to certain other types of nervous systems. That is like, we are driven by that. And because neurodivergence means that we often are in a world that doesn't accept us, that tells us we are doing things wrong. You get that Mm -hmm. message. I think that I forget what the statistic is, but it's something like by sixth grade, people with ADHD hear negative messages about themselves 20,000 more times, which is just appalling. Like that's heartbreaking to think. So unsurprisingly, you end up learning to motivate yourself with guilt and shame. Like that is Mm -hmm. one of the primary tools that people with ADHD learn to motivate themselves. And it feels awful. Mm -hmm. But if that's the only way you know how to motivate yourself, that's how you've learned how to do things. It's also, to be fair, it's why procrastination is a really big problem. You know, essentially until the feelings of like guilt and shame get so overwhelming that you just do the thing, you keep doing that. So the important piece here is like no system is going to fix that like ever. If you are, you're fueling yourself with like really dirty, icky fuel that like burns you out occasionally that isn't sustainable, that doesn't, you know, address procrastination or any of these things that we demonize, which I also have feelings about, but Mm -hmm. you need to be fueling yourself with interest, with stimulation, with engagement. And until you do that, no system will work, at least sustainably. You will keep going through the burnout cycles, which is why, I mean, I do a lot of like system and process work with people, but the shaming work is a huge part of it and often comes first. And is sort of like a prerequisite to that kind of stuff being sustainable because it just sucks your soul and the joy out of everything. And joy is like one of the most beautiful parts of having ADHD. We are joyful people generally. We are are a joyful people. (laughs) And it's funny because that's why January was so different because for the first time I'm looking back and I'm thinking my entire life. The shame of missing a deadline was no longer enough to make me do the work at the 11th hour. Yep. And that happens. Yeah. That's the other thing. The stakes, essentially, you just start getting to a point where it's like, well, I'm I'm a broken, fucked up human. Sorry, I'm not allowed to swear. Oh, you're 100% allowed to swear. I, I thought so. But like, <laughs> I, I'm conscious I was just on public, like, public radio and I had this like oh. thing about being like, oh my God, I'm going to swear and like get them fined by the FCC. Anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, I totally so, thought like back in January, I like totally thought I am just so fucked up. I can't even like, I was doing a live training. I was so excited about the live training. I was going live in the wrong group. I was sending this stuff to the wrong place. Like I was so, and for 48 years of my life previously, I was able to like find that. And it's not even a sixth gear. It's like a seventh or an eighth gear, oh, yeah. right? Like you're just yeah. like, and you can like bring it home. Well, and you can like hear the, I mean, like if you think about it, you can feel the gears grinding, yes. like making that terrible noise and like the exhaust is like gross <laughs> and smelly and polluted. You get it, you get there, but like yeah. it is awful and, so it, not- and it eventually breaks you down. Like, I mean, the yes. the things that I've seen happen and it even happens with me occasionally. Like I, I still, especially I have some chronic illness that makes it worse, but like 
these cycles where essentially you're you're using these like you know eighth gear mm-hmm. diesel powered terribleness to fuel yourself and of course inevitably at some point like your engine's like yeah we can't do that anymore <laughs> yeah, sorry so just so you know, I don't care en- how much you pressure you put on the accelerator it's just like we're broken and I my, mean that in like physical sense. My engine just after 48 years stopped in January. I was like, we're not, we, I, we're not doing this anymore. And I, I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was like, do I have depression? I, maybe I have depression now. And I, you mentioned it earlier. I used to joke that I go, I think I have like a light form of anxiety and that, but I knew people who had like legitimate, uh, like, uh, I don't want to say like one's legitimate and one's not, but like diagnosed anxiety. Yeah. And I'm like, that, that is their like, you know, one of the, the if we're talking about root cause sort of yeah. like thing. Yeah. 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 I'm like, no, they have like an anxiety disorder. I just have this like constant anxiety all of the time. So I, I knew that wasn't quite it. And then, then I, when this happened in January, when my eighth gear just wasn't working anymore and my engine just blew up, blew out. And I was, you know, it's always worked my entire life just stopped working and I completely shut down and I couldn't, I was like lying in bed. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want to get up. Um, and that's when I thought, well, maybe this is depression. And then, you know, leading to the diagnosis, which everybody told me the diagnosis is the first yeah. step. It really is. And sometimes like some people don't even need to get the like formal label from a doctor. Like part of that is, is, you know, will that feel validating to you? And if so, 100% pursue it. But know that like, it can be costly, it can take time, etc. Of course, if you are someone who wants to explore medication, which is part of one of the tools that you can use to mm-hmm. help with ADHD, you obviously need to have a, a doctor who gives you a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But because you've been fueling yourself your entire life using the wrong fuel, mm-hmm. and you know there you have essentially been adapting yourself to the world rather than adapting the world to you Mm -hmm. you have to unlearn a lot of stuff I mean Mm -hmm. that that's really what a a diagnosis usually is the first step towards is like it allows you to realize oh there's a different way of doing things I need to be doing things differently so I need to learn this and like the reality is taking medication is not going to fix that either it Uh, doesn't by the way no it doesn't I mean I I (laughs) I take medication I'm a big fan for me. Mm-hmm. It works. It, it's very helpful. The way I talk about it, it reduces the difficulty setting. It doesn't, however, magically make you able to do things differently. That's where the a lot of the shifting happens. And that's a lot of the work I do with people is sort of like, okay, if we start from basic principles and like we stop fueling ourselves using guilt and shame and pressure and shoulds, mm-hmm. what do you do instead? That's the journey. Yeah. And, and what I found, the medication eased my anxiety. which was fascinating, you know, that all of a sudden that constant anxiety wasn't always there. I still have 27 tabs open. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I still walk out of the room with the water running, you know, I still like I'm doing all of the behaviors, but uh, the anxiety over it. And then it helps me get to what Megan here is sharing is the first step of the work, which is, okay, if I've always fueled myself, you know, I seek accomplishment because I've always received such, I mean, I am your, you know, national honor society, uh, you know, magna cum, whatever I graduated with from college, the gold core, you know, accomplishments always been incredibly important to me, but I've always achieved that accomplishment in a way that I was told was wrong. 
And I also didn't know how else to do it. So shame, like all of that. So fueling by shame and avoidance of rejection. Yeah. <laughs> well, and another one of the secrets is that they're bad. Like people think of like motivation and like in stimulation coming only from like good things sometimes. But you know what's really, really stimulating? Like conflicts and yeah. stress and like scary deadlines. Those are really stimulating, by the way. So yeah. they have some downsides, which is why we we want to like at least look at them and be like, okay, when is this of service to me? And when when is this not of service to me? Because that's the other piece of this is recognizing like there are probably a lot of ways if you aren't consciously stimulating, you know, giving yourself st- the appropriate stimulation, you're going to go find it somewhere. Yes. I always joke and I thought it was a joke and now I know, oh, it's not a joke. I am your clutch gal when shit hits the fan. Oh yeah. That's a real thing. Yeah. Like when shit hits the fan, my husband who's so on top of everything suddenly just goes like, you can just see the wall of like paralyzation coming over him. And I am like, all right. Okay, here's what we're going to do. And we're I'm going to do this. We're going to do, do this. Yeah. We're going to do this. Like, do this. <laughs> like if someone gets seriously injured or there's like an accident of some sort, I'm like the person you want there because yeah. I just, it's like the laser focus is a very real thing. And it's because those situations are provide a lot of stimulation it's to our brain, stimu- yes. which is like, all right, let's do this. We have, this is what we're built for. So this is another, another piece. And there's, there's probably some dispute about this, but I think it makes complete sense. And I subscribe to this and there's research to support it. Okay. You know, um, we think about 5% of the population probably um, can be labeled ADHD. And it, every, all of this is a spectrum anyways. It's not just like one right. thing or two. Right, right, it's right. sort of like everyone has their own manifestation of it. But but at that percentage, it means there's something advantageous. Usually if something is like just bad from an evolutionary standpoint, it's some it would be ah. a smaller percentage. But because it's sort of at that age, it's like, okay, there probably was from a population standpoint, a good reason that a chunk of us have this. And in the the theory is that essentially having people who are risk-driven, who seek stimulation, who really want to go out and do exciting things, even if they might have a a cost, is beneficial when you're living in a communal society. Because you need some percentage of the people who like, when you're sitting and starving and don't have food, are willing to go out and, and figure out like, can we kill a lion because it's the only food around? Like it's beneficial to have some percentage of the population be that. Now, if everyone were like that, we might've died out because we would all have been fighting lions or whatever. Right, right, right. Oh, but this is from a pop- population yeah. standpoint, having a subset be highly stimulating, you know, we put together lots of like complex ideas and, and stuff is very advantageous. but. And this is where the like the system comes in. The modern systems, modern the way capitalistic post-industrial society mm-hmm. works mm-hmm. is like a lot of that stuff is not as important anymore because we have a yeah. lot of our basic needs taken care of. And we've imposed a lot of structure and a lot of like executive function stuff that back in the day when we were involving the nervous systems that we have were not a thing. So even from a sort of, you know, population standpoint, ADHD theoretically is is a very advantageous thing and we'd see it at smaller numbers. So this is also why I'm a big fan of not calling it a disorder. It's just a different way of being. It's a different type of nervous system that doesn't currently match 
the way society operates, or at least in a lot of ways, it doesn't. Everything you just said feels like a couple of puzzle pieces just click together. Like that, I really can understand and comprehend what you're sharing there. There is an advantage to having ADHD. There is an advantage, our ability to put things together that, you know, seem obvious to me and yet not obvious to others, that that ability to, you know, in times of crisis, be able and and I can literally feel it in my 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 brain and my body. It's like oh, this is the weirdest out of nowhere reference, but there's a Kevin Costner movie for the love of the game. And when he goes, he's a pitcher and he's trying to get his like perfect game and he calls clear the mechanism. And it's the scene and they show his like everything around him. And I'm like, that's what happens to my brain in a time of crisis. hundred percent. Yeah, I actually like everything else clears. I totally laser focused. It makes sense that so like so many, whether it be, you know, 5%, whatever the percentage is, it makes sense that there's a chunk of us and it makes sense why that ability doesn't fit into modern day. Yeah. Yeah. We've been socialized out of that. We have a lot of the sort of like basics. Like I never say that people should like make their lives worse and like more dangerous if you have ADHD, not what I'm proposing. <laughs> and to be fair, there are plenty of people in the world who still have very dangerous lives where their basic needs aren't met. Not going to yeah. pretend that's also not true. Yes. But many of us who live, you know, in, in a more privileged world where our basic needs are met, a lot of the stuff that, that ADHD was is stimulated or driven by is just gone. And yes. so instead we have to find other ways of stimulating ourselves. And there are all these other stupid requirements like filling out papers and like having your car registered each year and stuff that is like absolutely toxic to us from a like stimulation standpoint. Cause it, yeah, there are lots of reasons. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that entrepreneurship, because mm-hmm. I know that's your people. I've seen different statistics, but it's estimated that something like, of entrepreneurs might have ADHD. That is not not (laughs) surprising to me even a little bit, but that also indicates a certain pattern in like what we are attracted to and also sort of how we are valuable members of society who have a unique set of gifts that has a really important place in the world. Yes. So two things just came up which, cause that was a very positive bent. And then my brain, of course, <laughs> for some reason, feeling very doomsday dareish. I think about when things are, I am never more anxious than when things are going really, really good. Right. Oh, it's terrifying. Oh, I joke, but it's like 90% not a joke that boredom is actually the scariest emotion if you have ADHD. When things are going really well, it's almost a skin crawling discomfort. Yeah. Yep. And I've, I've had endless conversations with my sister about this. And I'm like, I think for the first time ever, I have on, I finally understand why, because I'm stimulated by the excitement. And, and to be really clear, I'm not somebody who actually likes a lot of interpersonal drama. Why I don't like their housewives. I don't like like that stuff. That's not the kind of drama that I'm talking about when I use the word drama, but like 
when there's not a problem I need to go solve, when there's not kind of a mild catastrophe that needs fixing, when things are going really well. <gasps> oh, it's awful. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's like, what do I do with my life? No, it, it, in fact, it's funny because of course, a lot of times when I'm working with people, especially one-on-one -on -one longer term, we get to that place. And then it presents a whole new series of problems because it's like, I'm sleeping well, I'm taking care of myself, mm -hmm. I'm making money, I'm doing all mm -hmm. these things. And then it's like, oh crap, what do I do now? Like everything feels good. And I have now seen it happen so many times that I'm like, okay, now we know that this is going to happen. When things start going well, you're going to start looking for problems. So what do we want to do? Where do we want to get, yes. get our stimulation under these circumstances in a proactive way so we don't go out and create gigantic catastrophes for ourselves? Yes, because what I have found is, is I have spent over 48 years of my life waiting for this place of calm to arrive. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, I've been bullshitting myself this whole time. Oh, you don't, don't want, want calm? I don't want oh, calm. Oh no, calm is awful. <laughs> I don't want I don't want a contentment. Contentment is poison. So I think this is a great question. All right. I think this can be highly relatable. So what is like, we've circled around like what we really want to be motivating by, but this is a great place to talk about that. It's like, okay, I am well aware. So this is kind of like how we can kind of blow our own shit up when things are going well. You know, uh, we, we, we find drama where there isn't drama. We make a problem where there isn't a problem because actually it's incredibly uncomfortable if you're wired this way to be in calm. So if I don't want to fuel myself with shame and I don't want to fuel myself with, you know, an achievement for the sake of recognition and making other people happy. And I don't want to fuel myself by constantly being solving giant problems. How, how should we be fueling ourselves? So it, it is through a question that is existentially challenging and I know uh, that you relate to it, which is- Well, because you, you asked me it and I, I remember, asked you and it was like an answer. <laughs> like, oh my God, I don't, like, this is awful. Why did you ask me this stupid question? It's asking yourself a question that seems really simple, but is not, mm -hmm. which is what do I actually want to do? And that question, asking yourself and sitting and listening to the answer- like if you did nothing else, like that would change your life because most people don't know the answer to that question. Yep. In the moment, like even from a simple day-to-day -day perspective, like it's sitting in, sitting down, like, you know, you have a moment, let's assume that you have an afternoon to yourself and asking yourself, what do I want to do? Not what I should do, not yep. like what's on my to-do list, not what mm -hmm. I plan, but like, what mm -hmm. do I want to be doing right now? How often do you ask yourself that question? And that is the question to ask yourself to fuel yourself with ADHD. What's fascinating that I've seen is engaging with that idea is really challenging because that question requires you to start unpacking the shoulds and the shames yes. and yep. all the things that are getting in the way of you actually being able to answer that question of like, what do you want to be doing? Yep. There are a lot of layers between that and, and most people. It is the simplest question that is really so is. hard to answer. And I remember, and I think I still have never actually honestly answered that question. So thank you for reminding me. Fine. I'll put it on a post-it note and put it around the house. So I'm constantly reminded because I've done a fabulous job of avoiding it is that I've been asked that so many times. And every time my answer is, well, I'm doing this thing so that this will set up this so that that will set up this so that then I won't have to worry about it anymore. 
Yeah. Like 99% of my answers yep. are the thing. The reason I'm doing the thing is because I got to do this thing so that this thing can happen. So then I don't have to worry about it anymore. Then I can ask myself, yeah, what do I really want to do? I'm in a constant cycle of, well, let me take care of this thing first. Then I'll ask myself the question. Well, and, and it comes from a very reasonable place, which is a lot of us have this fear that if we ask ourselves what we actually want to be doing, we will say, I don't want to do anything or I want to essentially give up on my life and just become a slug, which mm-hmm. by the way, is actually not objectively a bad thing. I'm just questioning that, but yeah, that's a whole other conversation we're going to have. That's a whole other like, conversation, but like that, lazy. Comes yeah. that fear of like, if I ask myself what I want, that answer is not going to be an answer that is acceptable. Yes. The like Zen secret here is that like actually asking yourself that question regularly and listening to it and doing it ends up doing all of the other stuff too. If you start fueling yourself with what I want to do, all of this stuff that is in the category of like, I kind of think I should do, I kind of want to do, it just becomes easy because you are fueling yourself with a different kind of thing. Namely, you are following your interest in what you want. Like that is so crucial. So like, there's an assumption, like people, if you ask yourself this question, I'm never going to do chores ever again. And like my life will fall apart and my kids will starve and and the opposite is true because I, yeah, you're yeah. fueling yourself in a sustainable way. And it turns out if you do that, you then have energy and desire to do all these other things too, because it turns out you actually like don't want your kids to starve. It's just, you're fueling yourself with this like want, like my house is actually in really good shape. Most of the time, like it's not cluttered. Like I don't have too much trouble cleaning. Didn't used to be that way. But when I started actually asking myself what do I want to be doing it just started to be something that that happened naturally because I want my house to feel a certain way yeah so I know that I've done a podcast episode on it and if you are in my free program or my free Facebook group play more sell more if you're in my paid ones you know about my concept of the playlist the playlist is taken right out of ADHD dopamine menu Exactly. Yeah. We, we talk about menus a, a fair yeah. bit in what I do too. Exactly. Yeah. So it's right out. It's, it's, I, I saw that concept of creating a dopamine menu and play. I'm a music lover. So I was like, oh, it's like, let's create your playlist, which, you know, it's the same thing. Just to be really clear. It's still nine times out of 10 being implemented to help you accomplish the should not want. Like I am well aware of that. And I know that most of my clients who are utilizing it are utilizing it that way. Like, I feel like it's a, it's a step ahead, but it's still not a hundred percent of where we really want to be going. We're still talking about that menu is filled with stuff that like, you are going to be so fucking excited to do if given the op, like depending on, you know, the combination yeah. of stuff on your menu, like yeah. it, that part of you is going to be excited and you don't have to force yourself. You don't have to use willpower shit. And by the way, one of the reasons this works is because it takes so much less energy. Like yeah. so many of us probably have that experience of like getting like partway through the day and just being like, I'm done. I have no yes. energy to do this. It's because if you're fueling yourself with all this shit and stuff, it takes a lot more energy to do every little thing you're doing. Whereas if you're coming from this place where you're naturally fueled by like, this is what I want to do. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, I have lots of energy because I'm not using all my energy to like cajole myself into doing stuff. Yes. And so I felt it really important because the people who listen to me regularly 
or like, how is this different than the playlist? Most of us are still using that playlist to still get the shoulds accomplished. And what Megan is really offering here is to move, like the playlist is everything that we want to do that still creates the same. And I think maybe even I'm going to question myself as those words are coming out of our mouth. Maybe not even the same result, but a result that's even more, um, like it's even farther beyond of what we've even imagined yet. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can tell I'm, you can tell I'm still, I'm still integrating. I'm still learning. (laughs) And and by the way, it's like, that's the other challenging part because people with ADHD are so like present focused, like because yeah. the future, it feels like your future focus because you're always worried about the future, but you're not essentially like <laughs> if things are not going to give you a good feeling that you want right now, it's it's yeah. not real. But this stuff takes a little bit of time, one, to like just sort of grok and understand, yeah. but then to like shift. There's this, there's this thing that I've observed happens. Essentially, if you start fueling yourself from this alternate place, it starts being like, oh, wait okay, I don't feel quite as drained. I don't feel quite as drained. Yes. Then you get to this place where like, oh, I kind of feel neutral. And then you start being like, wait, I naturally want to be doing more. I naturally want to be like doing all this stuff that I've I've been struggling for years to do in my business. I'm just like doing them and it's not a problem. Is something wrong? And then, and then you just keep following it and it gets better and better. But there is like an adjustment period that's very scary because yeah. it feels like I'm not going to get to this place where things are easy but it's because you sort of have built up debt that you need to need to like yeah, and work off. That's the, going back to that whole statement about the diagnosis is the first step. So if I was diagnosed in last week of March and I've been on medication and I did like a fraction of the program, <laughs> but then joined Black Sheep and we've had a couple of one-on-one sessions and I feel like I'm still in that I am still like, okay, I am finding ways to be more playful, be more me. It's still to accomplish more shoulds yeah. than wants though, but I have that awareness of it. Yeah. And the myths not, start shifting over time. Yeah, like it yeah, ends up yeah, being yeah. like, rather than being 99% shoulds, it's like 70% shoulds. Yeah. And like, 50%. Like, and then you start getting more energy back and then you're like, oh, wait a second, this actually is real and it works. And it is a cycle though. I mean, it's definitely, yes. especially because so many of us have been punishing ourselves for so long. You know, you've been operating essentially in the deep, deep red debt levels for so mm-hmm. long that it takes some time to climb out. Even if you're really like unpacking things and doing the work, it's a lot. It's a lifetime of ableism and oppression that you, you're essentially, you know, unpacking. And, and over, yeah. So before we wrap up, I really think that it, because for those of you listening, and I'm going to put a, I, I always record a little thing at the beginning, and I'm going to make sure that I say, there's something for the non-ADHD years here. Because I think that's the, I have had not quite as many, but I have had clients reach out and say, okay, I don't have this, but having listened to you, I feel like maybe I have some clients or, so if you are a non-ADHD year, or if you're working with, you know, particularly for people here who are selling products and they're working with clients, you know, the systems that we've created to help our clients get from point A to point B, it it may, you know, it may not be that our system is technically wrong, but it's not working for that person. So this part, like, how can we use this knowledge to help our clients and just kind of have that, like, 
I've had somebody specifically say, what are the signs? And I don't think it's as simple as that. Like, it's what not. are the signs? But like, especially because uh, some of the stuff like it manifests so different. in different yeah. ways. It yeah. also like the reality is clusters of different things also lead to ADHD or ADHD type experiences, even if like trauma, like P- like literally PTSD yeah. can lead to a lot of the overlap there. You know, menopause actually creates some things. Sleep. Hello. The thing <laughs> that, the thing that I always say to like mimic, you know, some of the downsides of ADHD, the best way to simulate it is to like go like four days without sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, because that sleep deprivation also does. So there are a lot of different things that sort of can lead to this, but I think the wisdom is always comes back to asking that question of like, what do you want to be doing? What is fueling you? What are you actually interested in? Like that, Mm -hmm. if you just come with that perspective, rather than the, like, this is the system that we're going to implement and you need to follow it regardless. Yeah. Just that shift will help so many humans. It's simple, but complex, but it, you know, anytime your brain goes to like, just do it or like why aren't you doing this because I told you to do it that's when you want to question and be like wait a second as a coach as, yeah. as an entrepreneur maybe it's not because they don't want to do it or like there's something it maybe it's they just need to hear it a different way or come at mm-hmm. it from the perspective of like why is this something that you want to be doing and sometimes yeah. you'll figure out they don't want to be doing it and that's okay too yes um, then it becomes okay so is what's a different way we can create the same result or is that even like it goes back to what is it that you really want is that even the result that you really want I think probably like no I think I still want it but maybe it's like okay well what are some different ways I and I think this is so important particularly for newer coaches who feel so like these are the tools that I was taught and this is how I know how to use them and if we vary from that then we can get a little like shaky and unsure so this is really also, I think, building trust in yourself that you can say, 100%. here's the framework that I have. I, I've noticed over the past couple of calls that maybe this isn't quite working. So let's start with, what is it that you were like, what, let's figure out, like, is this something you actually want to be doing? Yeah, that's a really, like that, do you want to be doing this? And what do you want to be doing? Like, what do you, yeah. those two questions that, that, that's like going to solve 95% of, of that. And just getting curious about that. Yeah. Just um, staying in that curiosity, yeah. I think is so helpful. And you don't have to go be trained in how to work with neurodivergent oh, people. It has much more to do with just having the willingness to be really curious and stay side by side with them. And that you aren't wrong. Your system isn't bad or wrong. They aren't wrong. They're, they aren't. It's just they need something a little bit different. And your purpose there is to help them find that and to really build that trust in yourself, too. Yeah. So um, in the interest of providing a tool and a tiny bit of self-promotion, I actually have a <laughs> class on my website that for those of you who are trained in using the model from the Life Coach School or CBT or anything sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. Name, I actually specifically have a class that is about how ADHD affects that. So it might oh, be, that might be something that would be useful. So good. So like, I literally like go through the model and sort of like, how does ADHD show up in all these places and what can you do about it? So that, oh, that's that, so good. That so, um, yeah. so it's, it's a good class and, and it gets into exactly what we were talking about here, like figuring out how to, you know, just, just ask questions and be curious and, and know that like, there are going to be some minor 
like if you get to some minor points of resistance, it's okay. Nothing has gone wrong. You yeah. aren't wrong. They aren't wrong. It's just, you have to switch a little bit. Yeah. Switch a little bit. And then the last, this could be a whole episode in and of itself, but I've had enough people reach out about, I've mentioned it a couple of times. I can't remember if I've done a full podcast or not, but I, I don't know that comorbidity is the correct word, but oftentimes with autism and ADHD, you have uh, those same people can also experience something called rejection sensitive dysphoria. Yes. 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 That and is, yeah, it's, it's something that's present in a good chunk of people with ADHD, even more present in people who are ADHD. And it's essentially a strong emotional re reaction to the idea of being rejected in some way, which yes. as you can imagine, plays really poorly with a world that in some ways rejects you out of hand. <laughs> the first time that I was like listening to a book and this was in April. So just like weeks later, and I was listening to this very basic, like women in ADHD book. And I got to it was chapter four and I literally, what? I was like literally screaming out loud because I'd never heard of it. Didn't know it was a thing. And everything she said was like, that's how I experience. That's how I experience any sort of negative feedback. And I've had some clients, that's a second thing that clients have reached out of like, okay, I don't have, but you, you've mentioned this and I've wondered. So if your client, if you know, this is for that coach who maybe is providing feedback for a client, they, this isn't, you know, they may or may not have it. They, you know, they may or may not be ADHD. They may or may not have this, you know, kind of secondary condition, rejection, sensitive dysphoria, but I think me just knowing that that was a thing helped me figure out the next best way, how to handle that conversation. So yeah, because it's safe. Yeah. Cause a lot of this boils down to exactly what you just said, which is helping people feel safe and helping them feel yeah. like you questioning something or you pointing something out isn't about them. It isn't about you judging them or, you know, telling them that they're wrong. You're there to support them. So certainly a lot of it'd be interesting for me to go back and like, look at my own coaching about how I do this. Cause I know I do it. Yeah. There is a lot of like, we're just going to get curious about this. Yeah. Like if I don't have any horse in the race of what your answer is, like it's a completely fine. If like we learn that, like you actually do in fact want to be a slug on the couch, like that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and sort of like be being very explicit over and over again, that like your answers are fine, regardless of what they are and really reminding people that you're working with that what that whatever they're doing is okay. Whatever right. they're thinking is okay. And that they're still a worthy human being and like being very proactive about that. It isn't the same as by the way, like sort of cheerleading and the like, rah, rah. It's yeah. very much, it's, it's very, yes. Yeah. It's, it's very much more. It's an empathetic yeah. emotion than a cheer. And I have an example as a client of what, for lack of better words, I wish a coach would have done instead, which is, you know, well, I did this thing and they're like, well, I just never would have done that. Yeah. Oh my God. I yeah, wanted to not like hurt. I yeah. wanted to crawl in a hole. I was like, oh my God, you know, oh my God. She just never would have done that. Why would I do that? Right? Like and now I understand that maybe I understand my emotional reaction a little bit better. And now I'm like, oh, if there was, and I don't, this isn't necessarily a fault to those coaches other than like they're probably just as exhausted you know exhausted by like I why haven't I still done that thing right but now I'm like oh this would have been a great opportunity to be like you know what I noticed that 
this doesn't quite seem to be working for you. Let's figure out why. Like it worked for me, but it's not working for you. And I don't know that that makes it a problem. Yeah, exactly. It just means like, that it just means maybe it's just not what you want to want to be doing. Maybe it's yeah, you know, yeah. You just need a different a different path to get to the same thing. A lot of this is really getting unattached to how someone accomplishes something. Yes. But at the end of the day, it's yes. really much like standing back and being like, okay, we know where we want to get to. We don't necessarily know exactly how we're going to get there. And the more flexible you are with the house, yes. the more you are able to support neurodivergent people. I think that's a really sort of core thing. Yes. I have reflected back on, you know, definitely since 2016, when I was certified with the life coach school, but even farther back than that, just coaching, you know, in, in without formal training, without, you know, with, with different mentors of how helpful that would have been as a client with ADHD and rejection sensitive dysphoria. Not that I knew it at the time. So it's not like I expect them to have known it either. Right. Yeah. I think it's also just helpful for clients. Like for clients in general. Who they are. I mean, like, <laughs> let's be clear. I think it's very important if you're working with people who who have this yeah. condition. But like I think it's just also Ew. being a good coach. <laughs> and isn't that funny how I like this is how you still know that Amy still has some work to do on the side of the table. It was like you know, so that was, you know, I, I was like the weirdo in the room who needed that special thing, or maybe Amy, maybe that just would have been a solid coach and to be like, yeah, maybe that just would have been a better way to coach. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I try to stand away from, no, that's not true. I'm a very judgmental person under certain circumstances. <laughs> when I am coaching someone, I am not judgmental at all, but I am a hundred percent judgment. I'm from the Northeast. I can't not be judgmental. That's like built into my DNA. So and I'm from the Midwest. We will let you walk all over us. Oh already, yeah, so. absolutely. You will. <laughs> oh, Megan, this has been I, this was even better than I could have imagined. And just so you know, no, we had no framework. Is anybody surprised? And yet we still, I think, hit a lot of really key spots that I hope that if any of this resonated with you, you you're walking away with some good questions. If you don't have ADHD, but you are going to work with a diverse population and you just want to be a better coach, maybe. Yep. Yep. <laughs> This conversation has uh, left you with some really great questions and ideas to explore. Megan, how can my listeners connect with you? Sure. And reach out with you. So probably the best social to find me on is Instagram. And my handle is Meg, M-E-G-K-I-E-R-S-T-E-A-D. Um, mm -hmm. Meg Kirstead on Instagram. That's where I post most often. The other really good place is to go to my website and subscribe to my mailing list because mm -hmm. I do send out stuff regularly. You'll get notifications about new podcast episodes and yep. programs and all that jazz. So like those are the two places that's probably best to find me. And my website is megankirstead.com, which my last name has too many vowels. I will spell again, E-G-A-N-K-I-E-R-S-T-E-A-D. <laughs> -E -E and I'm sure it'll be in, in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, well, and we'll if make you sure search that's in the show. Notes. Like something resembling my last name on Google, there aren't like many people who are me and have a similar name. So it's pretty easy to find me. Yeah. I I have spelled it Kirstad, Kirstead without the A. I, I've spelled it all of the ways. So I will make sure that it's in the show notes and you spelled it twice. Megan, this was a delightful conversation. It was fabulous. I love it. I love talking about this stuff. It's so much fun. It is so much fun. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I mean, I wasn't lying, coach. I'm telling you, 
the end of that conversation, I found so profound and so helpful. And it's such a great reminder for all of us. So I hope that you grabbed your notebook, rewind if you need to, and jot down those questions that Megan offers for when you are coaching. And also, if you are looking for additional resources on ADHD, getting diagnosed with ADHD, I invite you to connect with Megan and I will have some additional resources in the show notes as well. And I hope this goes without saying, but obviously this episode is not a tool or a means for which to diagnose yourself. It is not intended as such. It is not intended to be medical or mental health advice, but I do hope that it is something that at a minimum is going to make your coaching so much better. And even uh, at the big possibility that you might have sense of yourself in this episode today and make some changes that will have you doing what you really want in this world. I just have to say that my transformation this year has been so huge, so powerful. I shared after we stopped recording, unless my podcast editor threw that in, of I'm finally at this place where I'm not trying to be fixed. And it's a beautiful and it is a powerful place and it gets me incredibly emotional to truly be enjoying this journey and to understand that the more that I just ask that question, what is it that I really want to do? The closer and closer that I will really get and there's not an end in sight. I'm also recording this exactly six months until my 50th birthday. There's something a little magical about that too for me. So I hope that you have picked up some of this magic from today's episode and that you will run with it. And I cannot wait to see what you create. And until next week. Coach, it's time to sign your first free client, your first paid client, your next client, and to learn how to do it consistently and having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. This is exactly what you're going to do in Free to Paid Coach. It's the only program giving you step-by-step what to do to become a paid coach and step-by-step how to handle the roller coaster emotions that come with doing what you need to do to become a paid coach. If you know you can't not do this life coaching thing, but believing that you can do it, handling rejection, and remembering how to do all of those things shuts you down, the free to paid coach community is waiting for you. Find everything that you're looking for inside. It's only $1,000, payments are available, and then you are in forever. Visit amylatta.com forward slash FTPC to join us right now. See you inside. Let's get paid, coach. Thanks so much for listening to the Confident Coaches podcast. I invite you to learn more. Come visit me at amylatta.com. And until next week, let's go do epic stuff.